Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. Thank you, Al. Thank you. Good evening. What a gift. What a gift to be with you all here. Uh, This is my sixth time preaching in the last four days. And I head back to New York City tomorrow. And your worship, your singing, your exuberance for God has filled my heart tonight. And so thank you for the gift of your presence, the gift of your worship, the gift of your singing. And hopefully I could add a little bit of encouragement uh, to us tonight uh, as we focus on Jesus and what it means to abide in his presence. But not just abide in his presence, to abide with one another and to abide with ourselves in God's presence. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, I have the privilege of pastoring New Life Fellowship Church, uh, a church in Queens, New York City. Uh, We have over 75 nations represented in an area where 123 languages are spoken. Uh, And so coming to London feels like I'm at home. Uh, The the diversity, the the, the flavors is just a really beautiful uh, sight to see. And I've been privileged to pastor this congregation uh, for the last 14 years, and um, just a gift to be there and a gift to, uh, to be here as well. Uh, but as I think about my journey and following Jesus uh, I, and what it means to abide in Christ, uh, I, I think about the ways I've been formed throughout my life. You see, in order to have a relationship with Jesus, we need uh, times of encounter, and we need a life of formation, We need both times of encounter and a life of formation. And an encounter can shape you, but it's formation that sustains you. And we want to open ourselves up to the ways that the Holy Spirit moves in gatherings like this. And at the same time, we want to cultivate a life with Jesus that when the worship team is not here and when the pastor's not there to encourage you, you still have a life that's dwelling deeply in God. And so I want to preach about that. But before I do that, whenever I'm in a new space, I share a little bit about my story and why this idea of dwelling and abiding in God is so important. I became a Christian at 19 years of age, about three years ago. And uh, actually about 24, 23 years ago. And I became a Christian, but uh, the way I became a Christian was actually quite dramatic because I did not grow up in a church. Uh, I grew up in a home that was actually quite indifferent towards the things of Christianity, quite apathetic towards the things of Christianity. My parents did not attend church, but as a child, they would send me to a church in Brooklyn, this small church, uh, a church called Arca de Salvación, Ark of Salvation. And they would send me to this church. I used to think that they were interested in my spiritual development because they would send me to church. But it turns out that uh, when I went to that Spanish-speaking Pentecostal church, they had three and four-hour services. That's good childcare. And so uh, my parents would send me to that church because you can get a lot done in three hours, a lot done in four hours, grocery shopping, go to the movies, uh, take a nap. And so they would say, go to that church. No, no, not the church with one hour service, the church with a four hour service. And so I would go to that church as a kid and hear about Jesus or Jesus. Uh, and so I thought Jesus actually was Puerto Rican growing up. Uh, they called him Jesus. They said, todo puedo en Cristo que me fortalece. They said everything along those lines. And so I believed, and I believe to this day that there's a little bit of Puerto Rican in Jesus. And so, yeah, I feel the spirit now. And so uh, I would attend this church from about seven or so to 12. 
And I stopped attending as a 12-year-old. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. And so I went to my parents. I said, can I stop going to this church? I'm not getting anything about, you know, out of it. And they said, sure, you can stop going to church. And it was like I was saved at that moment, saved from the church. I stopped going to church for five years, but found myself back in the church as a 17-year-old. You see, I started dating a pastor's daughter. And that'll get you back in the church real quick. <laughs> Somebody say amen. So the pastor said, the only way you can date my daughter is if you come to church. I said, I'm there, pastor. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. He didn't say what time I had to uh, come to church. And so I would come in the last 10, 15 minutes of the service. I'd sneak it in the back. And at the end of the service, he'd ask me, Rich, what did you think about the message? What did you think about the sermon? And I say, it was fantastic. And he said, what was it about? Jesus, you know, uh, heaven, uh, uh, sin. It was always about sin in the sermon, you know, sin. And I did that every week in a row. By the third or fourth week, he got the gist that I was sneaking in at the end of the service. And so I did that. I would learn about God. But the relationship came to an end a couple of years later. And I remember being so depressed. 19 years old, I was in Queens and I was walking to my home in Brooklyn just so depressed. And I got home and discovered that my four younger siblings were not home. They were at this church that I used to attend as a child called Arca de Salvación, Ark of Salvation. And so I asked my parents, my father who was coming off of a hangover, and my mother who was in the kitchen cooking, where are Jason? Where's Laura? Where's Michelle? Where's Melissa? And they said, oh, they're, they're at church, which was very strange because we never went to church. And they said there was an evangelist there. They were invited to come to church. And so I said, maybe I'll go as well. Maybe someone can pray for me, encourage me. And so I walked some three blocks to this small church. And when I walk in, they're having a revival. There's typically 30 to 40 people in that church. But on this night, there were about 90 to 100 in a very long, narrow church. And as I'm walking into the building, they're singing a song about the authority of the name of Jesus. That at the name of Je Jesus, demons have to flee. And they were singing about the authority in the name of Jesus. And as they're talking about demons having to flee, that's when I walk into the church. And I'm thinking, is it safe for me here? You know, is it safe? And so I walk into the church, sit towards the back. And 10 minutes later, my father walks in with my mother. They never went to church. And not only did they go to church, the way that my father in particular went to church was actually quite strange. He came into church with sneakers and no socks and pajama pants and a tank top and a Mets jacket and a New York Mets hat. Very strange. I said, Dad, why would you come to church like that? He said, the strangest thing happened. When you left the house, I don't know if it was an audible voice or an inaudible voice, but I heard two words. And the two words were, follow him. And I don't know if that meant to follow Rich or to follow Jesus, but because Rich was going to church to see Jesus, I put two and two together and I just followed you. He walked into the back of the church and sat down. And when he did that, a preacher got up, a Puerto Rican preacher with alligator shoes and matching alligator belt. He had it going on. <laughs> And he got up and he started preaching about Ezekiel 37, about a valley of dry bones. 
And he looked out into the congregation and said, some of you, you were like this, 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 this army that was once living. You were once alive. You had vibrancy to your life. You had, you had strength to your life, but now you're desolate. You're dry. You're fractured. You're spiritually dry. And, and, and Ezekiel breathes life. He, he, he prophesies over these bones. And I'm going to just say parenthetically, some of you came into church today and maybe you're feeling spiritually dry, fractured, desolate, fragmented. God wants to breathe life into you tonight. And so this preacher said, some of you are like this valley and God wants to breathe life into you. And in the same way that Ezekiel prophesied to those bones, this Puerto Rican preacher started prophesying to the congregation. And he asked, who wants the breath of God, the life of of God. And he gave an invitation and one by one family members began to respond. My sister responded and my other sister responded and my other sister responded and my brother responded and I responded and my mother responded and my father responded and an uncle responded and an aunt responded and a cousin responded and another cousin responded and another cousin responded and an aunt responded. Another uncle responded. Another cousin responded. I'm not done. Uh, another aunt responded. In one night, in that small storefront church in Brooklyn, 15 family members came to life in Jesus Christ. Just the breath of God flowing. God's presence was so powerful and so palpable. If my dog was there, my dog would have said, can I receive the breath of God as well? And his name was Milo. He was a chihuahua. He had many demons. He needed Jesus. We were weeping at the altar when we got home. We've never expressed that level of emotion before each other. And so it was very awkward. No one's making eye contact at home. We said, well, what do we do next? The only thing we could under to do next was to go back to that church. But between Sundays, I made a trip down the block to see my grandfather. My grandfather had lived there for many years, a holy man of God. And I remember walking into his bedroom, he had his Bible in his hand, and he said, you've been touched by Jesus, and that's wonderful, but now you're going to have to learn how to dwell in Jesus. Now you're going to have to learn how to abide in Jesus. Now you're going to have to learn to behold the beauty of Jesus. And he began to talk about what it means to abide, and that's what I want to focus some of my thoughts on tonight, John 15. Verse number five, hear the word of the Lord. Our Lord says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, breathe on us. 
Give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear, and a heart to receive all the gifts you have for us this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we pick up in our text, Jesus is about to go to the cross in just a few short days. And he's spending his time teaching his disciples, discipling them, giving some final words as it were. And what he's about to do is summarize three years of preaching, summarize three years of ministry, summarize three years of presence with his disciples. For three years, he's preached about the kingdom of God. For three years, he's casted out demons. For three years, he's opened up blind eyes. For three years, he has proclaimed that God's kingdom has come inside this earth. And now he's about to summarize and invite his disciples into one simple thing. And he does it in one word that repeatedly comes up in this chapter. The word is abide, remain. That you can't live the Christian life until you and I learn how to abide. We can't have what God has for us as sons and daughters of God unless we learn how to abide. That we cannot receive all the gifts that the Holy Spirit wants to pour out on us unless we learn how to abide. This word abide in the Gospel of John is, in, in Greek is the word meno, and it's a word that is critical to understanding the entirety of the Gospel of John because this word shows up not five times, not 10 times, not 20 times, not 30, not 40, not 50, not 60, 63 times in the Gospel of John. This word shows up meno, to abide, to dwell. And here's a range of meanings. That word meno means to, to abide, to remain, to stay, to dwell, to continue to be present, to continue in relationship, to tolerate or to endure, to wait, to accept, to suffer for, to submit to, to act in accord with, to be faithful to. Let me ask you, do these words describe your life with God? And if not, the Holy Spirit would love to invite you into a way of abiding and of being, and of dwelling with God. Abide. Dwell. When I think about the word dwell, I think about something I do every single morning. Every single morning, I make my wife Rosie a cup of tea. Yes, I do. I make my wife Rosie a cup of tea. Now, I know you folks know about tea here. Uh, Pastor Al made me a lovely uh, cup of tea before the service today. It was wonderful. I know you folks know about making tea. At least in New York, there are at least two ways of making tea. I'm going to get deep here. Two ways of making tea. You see, the first way of making tea is to be a dipper. Where you take the tea bag and you dip it in and you dip it out and you dip it in and you dip it out. And when the tea is to your liking, if you want to get real sophisticated with it, you, you wrap it around the spoon, you press down, you discard, and you drink your cup of tea. We're dippers. And when it comes to drinking tea, I'm, I'm a dipper. Uh, pray for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a dipper. I'm a dipper. But when I thought about that image, I thought, what an image and what a metaphor about the spiritual life. Because we often can be dippers. We dip, in, we dip in prayer, we dip out of prayer. We dip in the church, we dip out of church. We dip in the Bible, we dip out of the Bible. And transformation is done on our terms. But there's another way of making a cup of tea. That too goes beyond being a dipper, that 
you become a dweller. Where you let the tea bag just sit there. And you don't touch it. And right before your very eyes, transformation begins to take place. When you're dipping in, that's a lot of work on the shoulders. You're dipping in and you're dipping out. You're dipping in. But when you let it sit there, transformation begins to happen all by itself. And this is what I noticed. I remember having uh, breakfast with someone in Queens, and, and I noticed he was dipping in and dipping out and dipping in and dipping out. And I said, brother, why don't you just let it dwell there? And he said, because if I just let it dwell there, this tea will get too strong. And I said, my God, oh my God. He said, what happened? I said, the Lord is speaking. <laughs> because if you just dwell in the presence of God, his presence gets strong. And transformation begins to happen in ways that you cannot even fathom. When you find yourself abiding and dwelling in God, the presence of God begins to overtake you. And you find yourself doing stuff that you couldn't do before. You find yourself forgiving when you used to be resentful. You find yourself generous when you used to be stingy. You find yourself courageous when you used to be fearful. You find yourself loving when you used to be hateful. That's what happens when you dwell in the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit begins to do something in you that you cannot do for yourself. And what we desperately need, brothers and sisters, are people who dwell with God. What the world desperately needs are people who dwell in Jesus. One of the beautiful and more challenging passages in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, we see that the Holy Spirit is moving in the church and, and things are happening and, and revival is breaking out. And, and we see one of the most remarkable verses in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that these men were unschooled and ordinary and they were astonished, and here it is, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. The question is, who have you been with? Who have I been with? Who have I been beholding? Who have I been uh, 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 abiding with? They took note that these people had been with Jesus. And what we're invited into as followers of Jesus, is a life of abiding. Another way of saying it is we are invited to a contemplative life with God. A life that slows down to be with Jesus. A life that slows down to dwell in his presence. I live in the city that never sleeps. I know how hard this is. And at the same time, I know how crucial the invitation is for us to slow down to be with God. This is what Psalm 27 is about, isn't it? I mentioned my grandfather, the first psalm that my grandfather had me memorize. He said, I want you to memorize. The first assignment is to memorize the entirety of Psalm 27. In particular, verse number four. And that was the first psalm that I memorized and it's been the psalm that I've come back to over and over again because it gets at what Jesus is saying in John 15. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. Here it is. One thing. Somebody say one thing. One thing. You can do better than that. Say one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And that will I seek after. That I may dwell, dwell, dwell. This is King James. Dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies round about me. Therefore shall I offer praises in his tabernacle of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord, dwelling in God. A life with God often requires simple stillness, a simple way of being with God. Every day I take a moment where I just sit in the presence of God to just be with God, not to get anything out of it, but just to share presence with God. You see, prayer is often so transactional, and transactionalism gets in the way of communion. Transactionalism is I need to say certain things in a certain way and then God responds and does what I want God to do. And I believe in intercession. I believe in prophetic prayer. I believe in all the ways that we petition God and we must continue to petition God. But if the only reason we get to God is to get God to do something for us, we're not dwelling. We're not abiding. There's no more communion. God is now the cosmic vending machine that we go to because I need some stuff. Reminds me of what Mother Teresa said about prayer. Someone once asked Mother Teresa, what do you say when you pray? And she said, nothing. I listen. And the person said, oh, what does God say? And she said, nothing. God listens. And he was so confused, like some of you are right now. <laughs> and she said, I know no, no other way of explaining prayer but listening to God listen, sharing presence with God. When Jesus says, abide in me, dwell in me, he's inviting us to share presence with him. But I want you to hear something really important. We don't just share presence with God as an end. We share presence with God because it is in that space where God gives us grace to share presence with one another. I want you to see what Jesus does in this passage. He looks, he says, abide in me, abide in me, remain in me. And then he looks at his disciples and says, now love each other as I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now love each other as I loved you. Notice, Jesus says, I want you to abide in me, yes, but abiding in me is not simply for me and you. It's to train your soul so that you can abide well with others, even people you have a hard time loving. Now, I know you don't have any hard time loving anyone in East London here. I know you guys are all wonderful, but for, for the one or two people that this message applies to, pay close attention here. Abiding well. What I love what Jesus does is Jesus, 
He calls his disciples to love one another, to share presence with one another. And if you look at the list of his disciples, you see how radically different they were. Jesus doesn't gather his disciples based on shared interests. He doesn't gather his disciples based on same personality. He doesn't gather his disciples based on the same team that they root for. He doesn't gather his disciples based on Enneagram number. He doesn't do any of that. He gathers two, 12 disciples and two of them that should not be in the same small group. A guy named Matthew and a guy named Simon. Look how different they were. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon was a tax protester. Matthew collected revenue for the Romans. Simon was a rebel against the Romans. Matthew was wealthy. Simon was a commoner. Matthew lived to make his money by overcharging people like Simon. And Simon lived to kill people like Matthew. And Jesus said, we're in a small group together. You thought your small group was bad? This is a bad small group here. And yet, Jesus calls them to one another. You see, a good measure of discipleship is not how much Bible I have in my head, but the state of my heart towards people different from me. Jesus doesn't say tolerate one another. Tolerate, tolerance is a too low of a bar for the kingdom of God. And it's not romantic either. If I went to my wife Rosie, I said, hey, can I tell you something? I know we've been married 16 years, but I just got to look you in the eye and tell you, I tolerate you. I, I tolerate you. I, I don't think that's going to work. I go to my son Nathan. Son, come over here. Son, let me just get on one knee and just tell you, oh, I tolerate you. No, uh, thank you. Uh, no, no, no. Jesus invites us to share presence, to love. If I can use a term out of family systems theory, he invites us to a life of differentiation. Differentiation is a wonderful term out of family systems, and here's really the essence of it. It's about remaining close to God and remaining close to myself and my neighbor in times of high anxiety and resisting the polar opposite pull of cutting people off or fusing into them. Some of us, we cut people off whenever there's conflict. Some of us, we fuse into people and we lose our voice and we disappear into others. But what Jesus invites us to do is to hold space, to be present to yourself and present to your neighbor and present to God. And boy, do we need this. In the world that we live in, being present to others, empathy, understanding, discernment, presence. And when we're a presence, present to ourselves, we can truly be present to others in ways that are marked by love. This is something I've learned over the course of my marriage. My wife and I were engaged. We went to a premarital seminar. And the person up front, one of the first things that the couple said up front was, it's going to take you about 10 years to start learning how to be married. I said, this is awful. It's going to take you about 10 years to start learning how to be married. I looked at Rosie. I said, babe, we'll do it in two. Boom. I will do it in two. And uh, we're at 16 now. We're just figuring it out. Much of the stress and the, the difficulty in my marriage happens whenever Rosie is angry. Or sad. I, I, have, I have four modes of being whenever my wife gets angry 
or sad. Four modes. Whenever she's angry about something, sad about something, four modes. I, I, they have the computer mode where I say, babe, listen, uh, listen, I know you're angry about this, but listen, you can do option one, you can do option two, you can do option three. Uh, this doesn't work. I just want to let you know that number one, that doesn't work. The, the, the second approach I have is kind of like the, 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 the superimposing. Uh, if that was me, this is how I would respond to it. This doesn't work either. The third mode I go into is minimizing mode. Is it that bad, honey? Is it, you're really getting riled up about this. Is that really that bad? That certainly doesn't work. The last uh, uh, approach I go is the get out of there mode. I'll be back. I'll be back. And I just leave. I just, I, and I just, I just leave and I'll be back in two hours and three hours. And so I go see a therapist in this order. It's not working. And so I just need some outside help. Whenever my wife is sad or angry, I just don't know how to enter in. And so I see these ther- this therapist a number of years ago and he says, Rich, it's actually quite simple. Whenever your wife is angry, I want you to do one thing. I want you to be angry with her. I said, this is not going to work. What else you got? He said, that's all. (laughs) The next time your wife is sad, I want you to be sad with her. When she's angry, I want you to be angry with her. He said, of course, this doesn't work if she's angry with you. Uh, There's nothing you can do at that point. (laughs) But if she's angry, be angry with her. He said, it's gonna, you're going to have to tap into your own grief and sadness and anger, but I want you to do that so that you can enter into that space with her. And so I said, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. I'll give it a shot. A couple of weeks later, Rosie was angry. And thankfully, it wasn't with me. And so I see her angry. And she was more perturbed. She wasn't like really angry. She was bothered by something. And I looked over and I thought, this is my moment. My moment to shine. My moment to enter in. My moment to be present. And so I see her, and she's talking, she's frustrated, and I'm thinking, I, I got to be angry with her. I, I have to enter into this space with her. And, and, and kind of mid-sentence, you know, disproportionately, because it wasn't a really big thing, I kind of interrupt her mid-sentence and say, she said, what? How dare she talk to you like that? <laughs> Who does she think she is? We're going to drive over right now. We're going to fix this. And my wife is going, honey, calm down, calm down. This is, what are you doing? doing? I don't want to calm down. I'm kicking stuff now. (laughs) And do you know what my wife felt at that moment? Love, love. Oh, love, finally, this man is not trying to fix me or minimize or superimpose or leave me. Finally, he is entering into my space. Sharing presence. Now, certainly, I did it the wrong way that day. But hear the principle behind it. Remaining present. What does it say about this community here when there's lots of different uh, differences ideologically? The way we see the world and we're in the same group. How do we remain present to one another? How do we remain curious to one another? How do we remain discerning before one another? Jesus invites us to be present. But here's the third movement here, and then we'll wrap up our time. The abiding life is not simply about abiding with God and abiding with one another. There's also an interior element of this as well. What does it mean to dwell with myself in the presence of God? Dwelling with myself in the presence of God. 
Much of the reasons that we cannot dwell well with others or dwell well with God is because we have not taken the time to dwell with ourselves in the presence of God. And unless we're able to discern the ways that the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention on the inside of our lives, we're going to have a hard time abiding. I think about something that happened throughout the course of the pandemic. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, I, I really didn't feel too much uh, anxiety. I was in an adrenaline mode. I was trying to, you know, we got to figure out how to do church in this new reality. But it was in 2021 where something happened across the pond that really shook up our nation. Something that happened on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol. And I remember watching the, the, the storming of the Capitol. And it happened on a Wednesday. And I'm thinking to myself, this looks really bad. This looks really bad. And by Thursday, I'm thinking to myself, I, I think I need to say something about this. This is really bad. Which as a preacher, sometimes I just wonder, I wish all the craziness happened on a Monday. I just wish it happened on a Monday. Al, can you testify about that? I mean, let's call it Monday madness. Just give me a time to prepare my sermon for the rest of the week here. But it happened on a Wednesday. And by Thursday, I was thinking I need to change my sermon. It just so happened that in the church calendar, that Sunday was a focus on the baptism of Jesus. And I thought providentially that God had something for our church. And so I preached a message about what does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to be baptized? And baptism is more than just getting wet. Baptism is about allegiance. Where is my allegiance? My allegiance is to Jesus Christ. When I get baptized, I'm letting the world know my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And I talked about the various ways that we've been shaped. We've been shaped by cable news discipleship. We've been shaped by corrosive racism. We've been shaped by uh, conspiracy theories. We've been shaped by all kinds of charismatic prophecies that have gone all crazy. What does it mean to belong to Jesus Christ? To have our allegiance to Jesus. And so I preached a sermon and not everyone was happy about it. I started getting these emails to have Zoom conversations. Hey, Pastor Rich, can we have a two-hour Zoom meeting? I'm thinking, can anything good come out of a two-hour Zoom meeting? I don't think so. I said, can we make it 75 minutes instead of two hours? And one after the other started getting these emails, and my anxiety started surfacing. Having sleepless nights, pillars of our congregation wondering what's going on here, hard conversations on the horizon, and I remember one day I was about to have this meeting with someone and I was just feeling so anxious. Whenever my anxiety hits, I have a hard time catching a satisfying breath. And I'm reminded, as we say in our church, that our, bodies is our, our body is a major prophet, not a minor prophet. Our bodies speak it loud and tends to know what's happening before our minds or our spirits can catch up. And so I found myself just anxious needing a word, God, why am I so anxious? What's happening here? And so I, I went outside to my neighborhood, took a walk down Queens Boulevard, sat on a bench, and asked, Holy Spirit, there's something wrong deep down in my soul that I'm so flooded with anxiety. What are the messages, the lies, the scripts that I'm believing that's so dominating my life right now that's keeping me from being present to this person? And I sat at this bench, I had my journal out, and I just asked the Holy Spirit over a 45, 50-minute period, can you reveal these messages? And I want to reveal some of the messages that I sense the Spirit speaking deep down in my soul. And as I share these messages, maybe you can relate to one or two of them, but my hope is that 
you would do your own work in identifying the messages that surface, especially when anxiety is deep in your soul. I heard messages, we can put it up on the screen here. Uh, Some of the messages that I heard was when people disagree with me, it means I'm a bad leader. The next one I heard was, if congregants and I are not on the same page, it means I'm doing something wrong as a leader. I'm causing division by bringing up delicate issues. That things will end in the worst way possible and it will be my fault. That I need you to like me for me to be okay. That I need you to agree with me for me to be okay. That people who leave New Life, our congregation, expose my deficiencies in leadership. And I sat on that bench asking the Holy Spirit to reveal these messages, these scripts, these lies, and to fill my heart with truth. Why? So that I can be present to others. Some of the reasons why we're not able to be present with others is because we haven't done the work of identifying the messages deep down in our soul. And I came all the way from New York City to tell you that the Holy Spirit wants to give you revelation. Not just revelation of God, but revelation of yourself. Why? So that we can learn how to abide with others. And here's the beautiful part of Scripture, and I end with this. We are invited into a life of dwelling and abiding and being with God. But our dwelling and abiding and being with God is always a response to God's longing to dwell with you. God's longing to abide with you. God's longing to be with you. From Genesis to Revelation, God has longed to be with the people, to dwell with the people. He's in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when they sin and mess everything up, God says, I got to figure out a way to be with my people. And I'm going to figure out another way. Maybe we'll, I'll come in, in, in the tabernacle. I'll come in the temple. And when that all messed up, maybe I'll come in prophets. And, and, and maybe people will speak about my love that I have for my people. And when all that's done, God says, I, there's got to be another way that I can be with my people. It wasn't enough to be in a tabernacle. It wasn't enough to be in a temple. It wasn't enough to, be here, to hear the word of God spoken by prophets. God said, I want to come myself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And it wasn't enough to just dwell with us in human form. Jesus said, I must ascend to the Father because I want to dwell in you. In a couple of weeks when the Pentecost season begins, we are reminded that God longs to be close to you, that God longs to dwell with you. As Karl Barth, the theologian, said, God does not wish to be God without you. And so our dwelling and abiding with God is always a response to God's longing to dwell and abide with you. I know you don't have your act together. I know you have some struggles. I know there's some addictions. I know you don't pray the way you want to pray. But here's the beauty of it. God's dwelling with us is not contingent. His longing to dwell with us is not contingent on how well we pray. God doesn't dwell with us because we read the Bible. God longs to dwell with us whether you read the Bible or not, whether you pray or not. God's longing is to be with you. And the invitation in this text 
is to hear the heart of God. I long to be with you. I long to dwell with you. Now, would you dwell with me so that you can dwell well with others? Amen. Let's pray together. What's the Holy Spirit speaking into your soul tonight? What's the invitation from God this evening? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, which is better than life. We thank you that you're always beholding us with eyes of love. And that you long to dwell with us as a people and with us as individuals. Lord, would you give us grace, desire, discipline to dwell with you. And as we do so, in simple stillness and silence and reflection and solitude and prayer, may you surprise us with grace. May you transform our hearts and may you train our souls so that we learn how to dwell well with others. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.